This morning, our sermon is going to come from Luke chapter 15. Luke 15, and, and as, we're, um, as we're reading this text and as we um, go to God's word, um, let us pray. Oh God, your word is more precious than fine gold, sweeter than the purest honey. As we turn to your scriptures, send your Holy Spirit to infuse your word with truth and grace so that the good news of your love would shine before our eyes and delight our senses so that we cannot help but respond with wonder, faith, and trust. In your son's name, amen. amen. Luke chapter 15. We're going um, to begin at verse 1. Um, we're going to read verse 1 and 2. And then we're going to jump down to verse 11. Um, if you're willing and able, would you stand for the reading of God's word? Luke 15. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, This fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. Let's jump down to verse 11. So Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. So he divided his property between his sons. A few days later, the younger son gathered all he had and traveled to a distant country. And there he squandered his property in, every, in dissolute living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout the, the country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. He would gladly have filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have bread enough to spare? But here I am, dying of hunger. I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. So he set off and went to his father. But while he was still a far way off, his father saw him and he was filled with compassion. He ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. Then the son said to, the, said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly, bring the robe, the best one, and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Get the fatted calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. Now the elder son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the slaves and asked what was going on. He replied, Your brother has come home, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he got him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and refused to go in. So his father came out, began to plead with him. But he answered his father, Listen, for all these years I have been working like a slave for you, and you have, and have never disobeyed your commandment, yet you never gave me even a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came back, who has devoured, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him? Then the father said to him, Son, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. 
But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. This is the word of God for the people of God. And we say, amen. You may be seated. I didn't warn you it was a long one. Jesus tells this parable, his most famous of all parables, in response to some Pharisees. It's an important detail. That's why we read those first couple of verses. He's responding to some Pharisees who would not allow themselves to respond with wonder to Jesus. I think that out of all the characters in the gospel accounts, the Pharisees, the scribes, the, the religious leaders, they're the most confusing to me. I mean... Even more than Peter, one of the other disciples, I'm so confused by the Pharisees. Um, I've talked about how on Wednesday nights we're we're in the Gospel of John, and and there's some very weird, strange behavior from the Pharisees in the Gospel of John. Uh, We've been talking the past couple weeks about how when Lazarus, another really famous story from from the Gospel accounts, when Lazarus is raised to life, when Jesus brings him back to life, that's the moment that the Pharisees decide we've got to get rid of him. And it's not because they don't believe the rumors. It's because they had someone there watching that they trusted, and that person came back. So they know that Jesus can raise people back to life. It's not that they don't believe it. It's that they know it. And it's because of that that the Pharisees want to kill Jesus. What weird behavior. These religious leaders, they they witness these signs. They see the mercy of Jesus. And most of them don't change a bit. Some of them do. That's concerning to me. Uh, because I, I can't help but think about how some of us here, then I know that I have fallen this back bracket. We can't help but want a miracle. We would love to see even the smallest of miracles in our lives, the faith boost that that would give us. But if we think that that's automatically going to allow us to accept Jesus, then we need to pay more close attention to the Pharisees. The Pharisees and other religious leaders show us that even though... Even if we were to witness someone being raised back to life, that there's still a chance if that person doesn't agree with us, if we don't like that view of God, that we might reject it. The Pharisees, they lack wonder. They lack the ability to be amazed. It's got to be the most important thing. If you're going to dare talk about God, if you're going to dare say something about God, then I hope that, that we start with wonder with the ability to be amazed by God. That's important. That's so important. And, and, and if you go to theology school, they'll tell you right from the beginning, if you want to, if theology, that word means God talk, talking about God. If you want to dare engage in theology, you better be prepared to be surprised and shocked. That's so important when we talk about who God is. And I think it's because the Pharisees refuse to be amazed. They refuse to be surprised by God that keeps them from accepting Jesus. They lack wonder. I think it's, you know, of course, it's impossible to comprehend God fully. It's impossible for us to fully grasp, right? Fully comprehend God. God is way too vast for us to fully comprehend. And so if we act like the Pharisees who are so concerned with that very thing, That very thing of boxing God in by their own standards, by their own understanding, and abiding by their strict view of what God does and what God's allowed to do, then then we too will struggle to be amazed by God. We also won't have the ability to experience the wonder of God. 
uh, that song that the, the praise team, all the songs that the praise team sang again, once again this week have been so, so powerful and so good. Um, but the one that is quickly becoming one of my all-time favorite hymns is that new one that Pastor Kevin and, and the team introduced to you. It's called There's a Wideness in God's Mercy. These lyrics are so powerful. One of those verses say this, We make God's love too narrow by false limits of our own. We magnify its strictness with a zeal that he will not own. That's what the Pharisees are doing in our story. They create a box and they say God can only associate with these types of people. God can only associate with this person or that person. And therefore, I'm only going to associate with this person or that person. God only cares about those who think and act and look like me. And so I'm justified by only associating with people in that circle. I'm, I'm, I'm justified in not engaging with others who are different from me. That's the Pharisees, limiting God, limiting how God can act in the world. I think that hymn tells us pretty well why Jesus came. Why did Jesus come? You know, that's a question we, get, we might get asked as Christians. Why did Jesus come? What, what, what did he come for? And I think the, the response that might come to our mind quickly is, is the classic response to die for our sins, to be raised to new life, to show us how to live. It's a great, great answer. It's, it's an important answer. But if you're looking for something fresh and a new answer to give someone, try this out. The reason Jesus came was to show that human beings have too often limited God's love. And God had to come down and show us for himself what he's willing to do. That's why Jesus came. So to show us that the love of God is broader than the measure of the mind. The heart of the eternal is most wonderfully kind. As another verse in that song says. That's why Jesus came. The Pharisees are just too in love with their own image of God. They are too in love with their own view of cleanliness, righteousness, or perfection. That's idolatry. (laughs) Limiting God to only one perspective, one image. That's idolatry. Since Jesus' signs and wonders aren't emitting an experience of wonder for the Pharisees, Jesus decides to try out some stories. Maybe some stories will pull the heartstrings of these Pharisees. And we jumped over a couple of the stories. Jesus tells three stories in response to the Pharisees. And, and the other two are really good as well. The, the first one is about a shepherd who, just in a, in, a, in a crazy, irresponsible decision, leaves behind 99 sheep in order to find one. And the rejoicing that takes place afterwards. The next story is about a woman. We don't have a lot of details of this story, um, but some scholars have kind of given some, some ideas of what might be going on in this story that the people at, at the time would have picked up on this really quickly. But um, this woman has some coins. Now, back then, women didn't really have much of a reason to have coins unless they were widowed or something along those lines. Generally, the husband would take care of all the finances, and so a woman really wouldn't have money. But there was one point in time where a young woman might have some money, and it's right before she's going to get married. And so the, the money would be given to her by her own parents, and she would, she would take the money, and, and sometimes they would sew it into what would become sort of a headdress, and, and they would have the money in it. And so it was a dowry for their marriage. It went to the, new, to the husband, the, the man who was taking her as a wife. And so some have, have thought the only reason that a woman would have money is if that's what it was. And so they would come in coins, and, and so the, she loses one of the coins and so the imagination might say that one of the coins pops off the, hair, the headdress and she loses it. Now that one coin, it might not seem like a lot amongst the, all the others, but it's crucial 
because that dowry has to be paid in full. And so it's crucial in this story. And so this woman to, to be married and to be taken care of in this time would need that coin. And so the celebration that she experiences after, we have to imagine it in that light. And then Jesus wants to tell one more story. Maybe those two stories weren't moving enough. So he tells the one about the irresponsible father. Have you heard this one before? The one about the irresponsible father. There was a father who had two sons. Sons, children, human beings. Now these are way more valuable than sheep or coins. So let's try this out. Maybe this will pull the heartstrings of those Pharisees. Sons, unlike sheep or coins, also have a will of their own. They make decisions on their own. They can choose to depart, unlike the coin or the sheep. The younger son chooses to depart. He's ready to experience life, and so he wishes his father dead. He demands his inheritance. The irresponsibility of the father begins right at the, moment, right at the beginning. The father could have, and many would say should have, rejected it. He should have said, no, I'm not giving you your inheritance. This isn't yours yet. The father, by all cultural standards, should have disowned his son for the mere request. The father, though, is an allower. (laughs) Takes some imagination to picture God as an allower. He could have and maybe should have said no. It would have been enough grace for the father to have said no just to protect him from his own stupidity. But that's the story that the Pharisees would have wanted to hear. God is an allower. For the Pharisees, though, God isn't an allower. God demands rigid commitment to the rules and cultural norms. And if you step out, you're disowned. Jesus tells of a different view of God. A view that the Pharisees would have seen as completely irresponsible. A view that the Pharisees would have seen as wrong. What foolish father would grant this request? Truly, this father shames himself. Now, you've got to remember this is an honor-shame culture, so everything rests on bringing honor to your family. If you bring shame onto your family, you have failed at life. In this honor-shame society, this father shames himself by granting this request, by allowing his son to make these steps. We might hear this story and think that the whole story is, is about the son, the younger son. It's often called the prodigal son. It's mainly about that son and the shame that he experiences, especially that shame at the very bottom, at rock bottom, when he's in a pig pen. That's important. It's important to the part of the story. But I think what's so amazing and full of wonder about this story is how the father willingly embraces shame so that the son can make his own decisions. Shamefully and irresponsibly, the father grants the younger son's request. Jesus doesn't spend a whole lot of time, actually, on the part of the story where the son is, is out in his desolate living. Usually when we think about this parable, we want to think a lot about what the son is doing. What is it that he's doing in his life? What does he do with his inheritance? We imagine the different sinful decisions he must have made, the parties he must have attended, the people he must have been with. But Jesus only spends a moment here, just a moment. He simply tells us he squanders his pro- property in riotous living. That's it. That's the only thing we're told. We can expound on this, what it means, but Jesus' point is simply that this younger son loses himself. He loses himself between his bad decisions and the famine that's kind of out of his control. This Jewish young man living in a foreign place must get the dirtiest of all jobs. Remember, the story is being told because Jesus dared to associate with people that are deemed as sinners and unclean. Jesus dared dared live that way. 
So the Pharisees attack him for it. They don't like him for it. They shun him for it. So Jesus tells us that this son who's gone away, who's at rock bottom, gets a job working with pigs. Pigs are unclean animals for the Jews. He is not only actually dirty from the stink of the pigs, he's ritually unclean for associating with them, for being near them. Jesus tells us that the son in rock bottom pig farm comes to himself. After the son had completely lost his, himself, his true self, who God had really intended him to be, he comes to and recognizes his foolishness. He comes to. He has a plan to confess his own mistake and ask his father if he can just serve as a slave in his house. The irresponsible father sees his son while at a distance. He sees him while he is a long way off. The father once again shows just how much he cares about cultural expectations. He shares just how much he cares when he runs out to meet his son. The father doesn't care about the shame that comes with that. You know, everyone back then wore these kind of robe-looking things, and they didn't really have pants like we're wearing now. I mean, how do you run in that? You have to hike it up and run. I mean, can you imagine how silly he looked? The father doesn't care. All the worse, the stink of the pigs are probably still on his son. He's ritually unclean. He's called shame on his father's house. The father doesn't care about the shame. The father embraces his son. He doesn't care that the law says that he is now unclean by touching him. He doesn't care that the word will spread that this father has taken in his sinful son. There's this beautiful moment where the son begins this rehearsed speech. He starts giving this rehearsed speech. He's going to beg his father to just take him in as a slave. But the father doesn't even let him finish. He cuts him off in order to rejoice that this son has come home. The father doesn't care that even more shame is going to come on him now that he's accepting this son back. He doesn't care that more shame is going to come on him. Not only does he accept him back, he throws him a big party. Shameful, irresponsible. For the father, despite cultural norms, there is inherent dignity in this man because he's his son. Not because of anything the son has done. As a matter of fact, it's despite because of everything that the son has done. He still has dignity. That's what Jesus wants you to know about God. That, that God won't abide by the boxes that we humans try to put him in. That God won't abide by those. That while the cultural norms would be to shun this child and throw him out, God throws a party. That's God. That God's method for overcoming shame. God overcomes shame. But his method for doing it is by embracing it. Embracing shame. All people, all of them, every single one, no matter what they've done, has dignity. Not because of anything they do. And despite of anything that they may do, a person, a human being has dignity. Jesus himself as the true embodiment of God on earth, overcomes sin and shame, not by avoiding it, but by embracing it. You remember the first week of Lent, the, the trench that, 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 the need, that the fish need to go through to get to Nemo? Through it, not over it, not avoiding it, not around it, through it. Jesus overcomes shame by embracing it, by going through it. What love, what wondrous love, Jesus very well could have ended the story right there. Done. Good story. We're good. <laughs> no. 
But um, this third parable is very different from the two that precede it for the next part, for the primarily for the next part. You know, in, in the lost sheep story and in the lost coins story, it just ends at the celebration. That's how God responds when, we, when, when someone is found. But Jesus takes this, step, this story a step further. Don't forget why Jesus is telling this story. He tells the story in response to the Pharisees attempting to limit God's love. The religious leaders attempting to put constraints on who God would dare associate with. Jesus tells this story to challenge those religious leaders who, has, who have actually lost the way, who are the ones who are truly lost. The Pharisees want to say that God doesn't associate with certain types of people, so neither should we. And when Jesus challenges those limits, they refuse to be amazed and changed by it. And so Jesus continues this story of the irresponsible father. You may have forgotten the story began with two sons. The older of these two sons seems to have been forgotten about up to this point. All this time that the younger brother has been away, the older brother has been at home, following the rules, doing it by the books. He's done what he's supposed to do. He's worked hard. He's, make, he's worked hard even to make up for the lost property that the, the younger son lost. He's followed the rules. He's done it right. He's gone by the book. Not much unlike the Pharisees. The Pharisees, for who Jesus tells this story, if anyone, who had, if anyone in this time had followed the rules, had gone by the book, It's the Pharisees. If anyone has put their heads down, worked hard for self-righteousness, it is the Pharisees. So when the older brother hears that the rascal has come home, the father has shamed himself further and the household even further and throws this son a party, the older son has had it. He's stewing in his frustration. He certainly won't be going into that party. He's determining if he should stick around or maybe he'll set off on his own, make better decisions. What do you know? That shameless father does it again. You see, in in first century Palestine, hospitality was everything. How you received someone into your home meant everything. It said everything about you. As the host of the party, you were responsible for being there and serving your guests and, 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 and entertaining them as they need to be entertained. And what does this father do? He leaves the party. (laughs) He's supposed to be hosting all these people that he's throwing this party for, and he leaves. How shameful. Guests have come and, and they're, they're come to this shindig. Hospitality is everything. And this father leaves. I mean, worry about that snob later. Just celebrate right now. You can deal with him later, right? No, the father says, my son is lost. The older son commits really a similar sin that the younger son committed at the beginning. He's making it about him. He makes it about himself. He made this situation all about him. And the father's mercy and shamelessness applies all the same. The father goes to him, the older son, much like the younger son. He has his speech ready. Listen, he says, I've been slaving away for you, keeping my head down, following the rules, supporting and loving you as you mourn for your younger son. And I've barely had a good birthday party. I'm tired of your shamelessness. Of course, I'm paraphrasing, but listen to this part. As soon as this rascal son of yours comes home, after years of doing who knows what, you throw him a party like it's 1999. Listen to the father's response. No paraphrase needed here. Son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and he's found. Did you catch that? The father turns it back onto the older brother. The older brother says, your son, 
You ever done that as a parent? I hadn't experienced that yet, okay? But have you ever done that as a parent? Where, where you say, your daughter, your son did this. That's what the older brother is doing. Your son. He's distancing himself. The father says, your brother. Your brother is back. <laughs> he saves the um, last, the best part of this whole story. Jesus saves the best part of this story for the very end. He doesn't tell you how it ends. What a way to tell a story. He doesn't tell you how it ends. We don't know what happens next. He stops right there with the father opening his arms to the older brother saying, come on in, celebrate with us and join the party. Join the welcoming party. Be a part of that. Participate in that. He ends it right there. We don't know what he does. We don't know what the older brother does. Does he go in? Does he stay out? Does he leave? Does the father sit with him until he decides to come in? We don't know. We don't know what he does. It's almost as Jesus does this. It's almost as if Jesus does this on purpose. It's almost as if Jesus wants you to decide what the older brother does. Me to decide what the older brother does. It's almost as if he tells this whole story for the sake of those Pharisees. Those Pharisees who resemble the older son. It's almost as if he wants the Pharisees and all of us to decide. What the older son does. Will we stay outside, sulking? Will we be one of those that spread the word of this father's shamelessness, irresponsibility, shameful, worthy of being shunned by the community? Or will he go in and celebrate? What will he do? Here's what the story tells us that we have a choice. We have a choice. Are we going to participate in the celebration of the younger brother's return? Are we going to stew in our judgment, self-righteousness? We read, from, we read the text earlier from Paul. Jordan read for us that those who have been reconciled to God, they've got a choice. If we are truly reconciled to God, we're going to participate in the reconciling of others. If anyone is really, actually, truly in Christ, they are a new creation, not because of any worthiness of their own, no amount of self-righteousness could do it. And when we have really accepted that, when we've really been changed from that, we become reconciled to God, and then we start working with God to do some more reconciling. Since we've been reconciled to God, as Paul explains, we are to participate in the reconciling of others to God. Our job is simply, is simply to create a community of radical hospitality. A place where people who are lost can come and be celebrated. That is our job. That is the ministry of reconciliation. The tough part is, is that if the older son goes in, if he goes in and celebrates the younger son, he's choosing something. He's choosing the shame. He's choosing to accept this unclean sinner. His self-righteousness that he has worked so hard for, it's all out the door now. If he goes in that door... Everything he's worked for is gone. He's embracing shame. The work of reconciling others to God requires us sometimes to embrace shame with Jesus. It requires us to risk being shunned by others. It requires us to really consider if we want to participate in this. Jesus doesn't avoid the shame that comes with embracing culturally unclean sinners. Jesus embraces the shame. And for that, he receives the worst shame of all. The worst shame that the world could throw at him. There is nothing more 
shameful than being crucified. There is no more shameful way to be killed than to be crucified. The reason that the Romans loved this method of killing so much is because it resulted in shame. And so you were going to do everything you could to avoid that shame. The victims of crucifixion were stretched out. Their hands were nailed so that they couldn't move. They couldn't budge to cover their nakedness. They're up there stretched out for the world to see. All for the world to see. Shameful. Irresponsible. That's what Jesus does. That's what God does. That's the extent of shame that the ministry of reconciliation requires. It makes, it makes sense for why the older son might want to stay outside. What will we do? We're going to um, sing one last song and then go into our meeting. Uh, we've been doing a response time after every, um, after every service during Lent. And, and we're going to kind of make move that response time into the annual meeting that's going to take place. Um, again, we, it shouldn't take us long. We've just got a few items of business to do. We're going to sing this one last song. Um, it, these altars are open. If you find yourself in, in any of the situations of, of this story as an older brother or a younger brother, this is a place for you to pray and come and experience God's mercy, God's wide, abundant mercy. But just know we're embracing, we're embracing Jesus who embraces the unclean, who embraces those that culture wants to shun. That's the job of of being a part of the ministry of reconciliation. Let's sing this last song together. I'll stand if you want to.